Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. There are two or three cardinal rules about kids saying that I try never to break, and I broke one tonight, and I paid for it. And one of the rules is that you never embarrass a child. You never do that. And so if we have a wrong answer, you know, we don't treat that. We just treat that very gently because, you know, you may lose them if you embarrass them. So I don't want to ever do that. But another one is that you never rush children. And um, I know that in, in our family lives, sometimes we just have to. But we, we had a child tonight who desperately needed to tell me something. But it was time to start worship. And so we were involved. And so I kind of hurried him along. And I could not dissuade him. And finally he said, I have to tell you this, Brother Glenn, you're a great preacher. And I thought, oh, anytime a child wants to say that to me, I think that I should let him say that. And uh, he's very sweet. He's very sweet. Tonight we're going to do questions and answers. And uh, we've been holding off on this. We've changed things up. And so we we haven't been doing Q&A a lot. I think what we're going to do now is do it maybe every two months and spread it out. About every eight weeks, we'll try to do Q&A, and I'll try to announce it ahead of time so that you know when it's coming. So get your Bible, and let's go through some questions tonight in the time that we have available to us. 1 Corinthians 7 and 39. 1 Corinthians 7 39. And it says this, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies... She is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. The question is, does only in the Lord mean that a widow must exclusively marry a Christian? She can marry who she wants, only in the Lord. And the person who wrote it says, I hope you can shed shed some light on this. I know a widow who's engaged, and I'm very concerned about the decision she's making for many reasons since it is a commitment that will affect the rest of her married life, family, and walk with the Lord. Well, the answer is that surely it appears to be that. Uh, the the phrase, only in the Lord, and of course we understand that when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ, and we are in the Lord, and so on its face it looks like that. You have passages such as Philemon, verse 16, No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Well, there's a distinction. You know what that means. It means a Christian. He's your brother in Christ. So the first observation is that it really, really appears to be just that, that a widow, a person who becomes a widow, 
remarries, and she must marry a person who is a member of the body of Christ, who is a Christian. The the struggle that I have with it, and I'm just going to be honest about this with you, frank with you, is that there are two or three things that I don't understand about it. I don't understand um, why this isn't equally said for the widower. If a man loses his wife, you have no such verse about him. Now, you would have broad principle, for example, Matthew 6 and 33, well, a seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You think that's applicable to our marriage choices? Well, I sure would think so. But I don't know why you would single out, in 1 Corinthians 7, why the Apostle Paul singles out the women and says, only in the Lord, and doesn't say the same thing for the widower. Don't understand that. And sometimes people will say, well, it applies equally to both. And, you know, maybe by extrapolation you could say that, but it only says it about the woman. The second thing is, I wonder how a widow who's a Christian and marries an unbeliever and how she would repent of that. that that's kind of a troubling question. Does that mean that the marriage is invalid if she marries somebody who's not a Christian? And should she put that person away? And that seems hard to, to think about in view of Matthew 19 and 9 and some other passages. And the third thing is, you also have this phrase used uh, in a way that's different from this, uh, different from only a Christian. For example, in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. What does that mean? That children are only to obey their parents if their parents are Christians. Well, we wouldn't say that. What we would say is that this is the Lord's will, and within the principles of the Word of God, they should obey their their parents. So, I don't know, maybe I told you more than you wanted to know, but I would just say that that while I don't understand everything about 1 Corinthians 7.39 and why he said to these widows, only in the Lord, uh, I, I still would go back to this. There is no question but what a widow ought to marry only in the Lord. And not just the general principle, but because this says this, and because it appears to mean just that, that's what I would advise. The, the thing to do is for, for a widow woman, and frankly, for a widower too, to marry only a Christian. Next. This is a really interesting question, and I don't remember getting one like this before. Here it is. Can a married couple gossip if the information stops between the two of them? Now, what would you, how would you answer that? Well, the answer is no. No, no, that, that would be wrong. It doesn't matter if they're married. Now, I understand why the question is being asked. It's because two people become one flesh. And I do like to talk sometimes about the freedom level of communication between husbands and wives. And that's a beautiful thing to have somebody in your life that you can just talk to about anything. Well, would that include gossip? No, it, wouldn't, it surely wouldn't include gossip. But remember... Remember that gossip is not just talking about somebody else. It's, it's taking information that is in some way sensitive and telling it for the pleasure of telling it. You, you, have, you have the word used over in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. The ESV calls it gossip. The New King James calls it whisperings. And, and it's whisperings because this kind of information is somehow shady. It's something that we know that we probably shouldn't talk about, shouldn't tell. So... 
I, I, what I want to say is that there are going to be times husbands and wives talk about people in their lives for different reasons. Let's just remember we're Christians. The fact that we're Christians and we're, the fact that we're married to one another would not, would not give me license to, to slander people to my wife. It wouldn't give me license to lie about other people to my wife just because we're married. Well, gossip is wrong. It's, it's wrong. And so, are there times we're going to talk about people for various reasons? Well, the answer to that is yes, but just be sure that, that even to your spouse, I mean, after all, this is your home. We're always exhibiting Christian attitudes. And so, the kinds of things you want to be sure that you, that you're in the context of would be, what can we do to help these people? What is it that, that we can do to help them be better or to do better or to get over this? Or can we aid them in some way? And it wouldn't be ever, ever the, the heart of gossip, which is, I'm telling this for the pleasure of telling it. Good question. Next. This is from Matthew 19.9. It's very common that we get questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And this one I think is interesting and I, I feel like it's relevant. You have two that are married. Matthew 19, 9. Whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. So there you have it. There's one exception for the one man for one woman rule. And that exception, aside from death, would be if your mate commits fornication. And then for that reason, God would approve you putting them away. doesn't command you to, but would permit it, and you could remarry with God's approval. And here's the questions. You have two that are married. One is a believer and one's not. One's a Christian, one's not a Christian. And this sometimes happens. Sometimes, sometimes it's because a Christian maybe isn't so serious about his or her Christianity when they marry and they pick somebody that's not a Christian and they're going to have to face the struggles of that. Hopefully it'll work out. But other times, you know, people don't become Christians at the same time. And maybe the wife hears the gospel and she'll become a Christian before the husband does. And so you have a mixed marriage. The question is, you have a marriage and one's a believer, one's not. The one that is not a Christian wants a divorce from the believing spouse. And that, that unbeliever gets that divorce. Later, the unbeliever remarries or commits adultery with another. And incidentally, Matthew 19.9 says, if you put away your spouse, it's not for fornication, you just don't like each other. You put away your spouse, and then you marry somebody else. Jesus said, that's adultery. Now just let that run in your mind. That's what he said it was. So the question is, later the unbeliever remarries or commits adultery with another. Does the Christian who was divorced by the unbelieving spouse have the right biblically to remarry because her ex-husband has committed adultery. There's really two issues here. And one of them is is addressed uh, well in 1 Corinthians 7 about a Christian married to an unbeliever. And you can imagine the questions that might come up. I mean, I've obeyed the gospel, but my wife is not a Christian. Does that mean that our marriage is no longer valid? There were questions that the people in Corinth had written to Paul, and Paul is responding to those questions. And here's chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Wait, wait. What that means is that the Lord has specifically spoken to some other issues about marriage and divorce, but he hasn't spoken explicitly to this one. It doesn't diminish the fact that the Apostle Paul is inspired to the Holy Spirit, 
He still is inspired. It's just not something explicitly the Lord has discussed. So now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, of wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So that's the, that's the bedrock principle. But to the rest say, rest I, not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, so he's a Christian, she's not, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let him not divorce her. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. This is a marriage, even though religiously y'all are not the same, one believer, one not. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they're holy. They're not unclean at all. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And we can talk about that, that principle some more later. But the first thing I want you to see is that, that the fact that a person's a Christian, his, his wife is not a Christian, doesn't somehow change the, the law. It's, it's not different because of that. So the question now, the second question is, what if the unbeliever divorces his wife, not for adultery, then a year later he remarries? Against God's will, Jesus called it adultery, but he marries again. Can the believer, the original spouse who's a Christian, can she or he remarry and do so with God's approval? I believe that the answer is yes under these conditions. In Matthew chapter 19, you have this term putting away. It's interesting that that the word that's used there can be applied to divorce, but it's not divorce. It's putting away. Whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery, and etc. Putting away is, is an interesting way to approach this, because I would suggest that, that if you have this scenario, that Christian could remarry and still have God's approval. The Christian is told by the unbelieving spouse in this scenario, I don't want to be married anymore. I want a divorce. And what if the Christian says, but that's not God's law. I, I made a vow, and I'm, I'm committed to that vow. I don't want a divorce. I, I don't want this at all. But suppose that the unbeliever then says, well, that's what I'm going to do, and, and he does. He goes and pursues a divorce and accomplishes that. And suppose the believing spouse who's left behind Never changes her tune. She never changes. She, When she talks to him, she makes it clear. I want us to get counseling. I want to work on this. I made a vow, a commitment to you before God that we would remain married. And I, I don't want to change that. And I, 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 don't, I didn't want this divorce, and I want reconciliation. I want us to work toward reconciliation and work out our problems. But suppose then, again, a year later, the man remarries. I would argue that it's... It's right then for that woman to then say at that point, despite the fact that perhaps a year has passed, but to say at that point, I'm now putting you away and I'm doing it for your adultery. And then she would have the right to remarry. If it isn't that way, I think what you've got is this interesting circumstance where whoever files first 
It's not it, it, that it would include that to have the ability to justifiably remarry could be based on who files the papers at the courthouse first. And that doesn't make any sense. A woman may be divorced from a man with, against her will, without her consent. It just, it is just something he was determined to do and legally was had accomplished. And yet she still holds to the vow. And eventually when he commits adultery, she puts him away for that adultery. All right, number next. Go to Mark chapter 14, and I want to start in verse um, 45. Let's go to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 45. This, this will give you enough context to be familiar with the text. And the question really is simply, who is the young man in this passage, and why is that in the inspired text? Now, you may not remember the young man I'm talking about, but you will in just a second. I'm in Mark chapter 14 and verse 45. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up, this is Judas, to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hold on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered them, Have you come out against a robber as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't take me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And a cer- here it is. And a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Uh, now, the question is, why, why is that in the Bible? And what does it give to us? And, and I'm afraid this is one of those answers where I... I do not know. I, I don't know uh, why. It may illustrate that the, the, the situation was very dangerous, although I don't know why you'd have to have that. You've got Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus, and it was, it was a high-stress, tense moment. I don't know why that would benefit anything, but it may simply be this, that having this inclusion, this note in the narrative that it really occurred, it, it may be to show that Mark was really in touch with, with the teaching or the, the testimony from the eyewitnesses who were there. And maybe that's all. Maybe that's just an obscure detail that is there in order to validate that Mark really does know what he's talking about. If that's not it, I don't know. Here's Mark chapter 3 and verse 28. This is the next question. What is the unforgivable sin? And how can I avoid committing it? Here's Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 28. Now listen to what the Lord had to say. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. And then you have Matthew chapter 12. It's a companion passage to that. Verse 31, Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Now, let me just, just talk about a couple of things. The first thing is that it's possible for a person to blaspheme, obviously, the Holy Spirit. But a person can blaspheme the Son of God. He can blaspheme the Father. He can blaspheme even the Bible. 
the word of God. Follow this. Here's Romans chapter 2 and verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You can blaspheme the, 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 the Father God. Here's Matthew 27, 39. You'll remember this one. Our Lord is hanging on the cross, and all those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're son of, son of God, come down from the cross. You can blaspheme Jesus. You can blaspheme the word of God. Here's Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, that the older women teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Listen closely. That the word of God be not blasphemed. The word blaspheme means to speak against. So why? Why do you, uh, why do you seclude the Holy Spirit here and say now, you, you blaspheme the, the Father or the Son, but not the Holy Spirit. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for that. Now, how do you explain that? Could Jesus be literally speaking about words, and if you utter those words, there is nothing that you can do to go to heaven after that? I don't believe that's true. Let me explain why. Any, anything that conflicts with 1 John 1, 9... I think 1 John 1, 9 is so very um, explicit that, that to come to a conclusion about the, the uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that's inconsistent with 1 John 1, 9, I think is, is something that ought to give us pause. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I do not know how that statement can be true. If it's also true that there are words I could utter, and if I utter them, I have no possibility of forgiveness. So what's the answer? I believe it's this. The Jews of Jesus' day rejected the Father and Son by rejecting the Messiah. But the reality is that when you get to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out on those apostles, and they were able, by that, to preach the gospel of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just say that prior to this time, those Jews had rejected the Almighty God. They'd rejected the Bible, which we call the Old Testament. What if they had transgressed many of those laws? And, and when Jesus came in the flesh, they, they'd have none of it, none of him. And now there's one more chance there's one more hope, and what's going to happen is that the Holy Spirit is going to bring this teaching of the New Covenant, the New Testament, and Acts the second chapter. And I believe what's, what's being said is this. You may have rejected the things of God and, and of Christ and of the Word up until this point, but I'm telling you that when you come to the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of the church, the teaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. He that believes in this baptized, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Well, what if you just reject that, brought by the Holy Spirit? The answer is, there's nothing after that. This is the last dispensation of time. This is the last. There will not be another gospel after this. The next, next thing to come after this is going to be the end of the world. You reject this, and there is nothing after that. And to me, that, that seems like the most logical conclusion. Uh, I, I, I can only imagine, I don't guess this would happen, but what if, a person, what if a person presented himself to be 
baptized. And, and just before he was baptized, he heard about, he read these passages and says, wait a minute, I can remember a time, I don't know why I said it, but I said that I hate the Holy Spirit. I said it. And I, I don't see any point in being baptized. I have no hope. I'm damned. I have no, no recourse here. I said it. How would you respond to it? And suppose in a few minutes, though, he said, wait a minute. Now, that's not what happened. Upon reflection, I realized that I, I blasphemed God the Father. That, that's what I did. No, no, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I, I said it about God the Father. And would you say then, oh, oh, whew, boy, that was close. Okay, let's baptize you because, see, you could be right with God. So that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I believe that, that it means what I said just a moment ago. It, it means that people could have rejected the Father. During the Old Testament period, they could have rejected the Son when he was on earth. And then when it came down to Acts chapter 2 in the beginning of the church and the teaching from the Holy Spirit that was given to those apostles, that was it. That was it. And it's our only hope of being saved. Let's do one more. This is from Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. I'll read the passage first and then we'll ask the question. But you denied the Holy One and the just. This is, this is Peter and John. You remember they came to the temple and they healed the lame man and it caused a big ruckus. And now it opened a door for Peter to preach and so he's doing that. You denied the Holy One and the just and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, Barabbas, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, there's courage here, so much courage. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ would suffer... He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The question is this. In the Bible, we read that once God forgives, he remembers no more. Will we still give an account for those forgiven sins or only those we have not been forgiven for? And what about sins that we didn't even realize we committed and did not ask forgiveness for? Well, that's that's a, a rather complicated question, but... But let's sort through this. Now, it may interest you to know that the statements that mean God forgets our sins when he forgives us are, are rather abundant in Scripture. You have them in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, here's Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will, I will not remember your sins. I don't think that means that God has the inability to recollect details in the past. I think he, he's saying, I'm going to treat you as I did before the commission of the sin. I'll treat you like I did before. I'm going to put those so far away from me. In fact, you, you got to love Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. Who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of, it, of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And the Hebrews writer would say in chapter 8, verse 12, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. 
So God has a great capacity. When he forgives us of our sins, he forgets those things. So we don't have to face, you don't have to worry that when you go to the judgment, you're going to face those sins. But I want to make this statement too. We cannot go to judgment with a single sin on our account. You will not be able to take sin into heaven. All of your sins, all of your sins need to be forgiven before you go to the judgment. Is that a true statement? Romans 14, 12, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every man may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether they be good or evil. I don't see how we can approach God in judgment with a single sin in view of the fact that we have a gospel that is, is designed to keep us pure and holy and righteous. And that was this morning's sermon about the white robe. This is, this is a design by God so that when I obey the gospel, my sins are forgiven. And if I will walk in his light, and that includes making things right when I do wrong, and all of us are going to sometimes do wrong, I live forgiven. I live saved. But now that raises this other question in this, this one, and that is, what about sins of ignorance? What about sins of which I was unaware? You, you think sometimes we commit those? I would say that every one of us has surely committed in our lives, and perhaps often, I don't know, sins of ignorance. And I think it's especially true when we are in our early Christian walk. And that's why it's so valuable that you and I have a continual cleansing of our sins. It doesn't mean that a person can't fall from grace. Of course he can. It does mean that the design of the gospel is that our sins are continually forgiven as we live a faithful Christian life. It includes prayer and it includes confessing our sins of which we're aware. But when we do that, the Bible describes it as walking in the light. We're walking after the, the teachings of the New Testament. We're, well, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we're, we're walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You know what that means? It just means I'm, I'm a Christian. And every day I strive to be what Christ wants me to be. And when I learn that I have wrong in my life, I try very hard to get rid of it. I want to get it out of my life because my Christianity is genuine. First John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Talking about Christians, two Christians. And if, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Christians are going to sometimes sin. The blood of Christ is not just for unbelievers who become Christians, but for people who are Christians who sin. If we walk, 1 John 1, 7, in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, and the Greek import there is continually cleanses us from our sins. Romans 8, 1. Listen closely and enjoy this, Christians. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh. Don't you be messing with God. Don't you be thinking that I, I can live a, a life that is careless 
about sin or careless about living for Christ. Don't you be thinking that. This doesn't give any comfort to that. There's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That's how we live our lives. And for those people, there is continual cleansing. We live in a saved condition. That is to say that the cross and the plan by which we're saved is one by which we can face eternity. We can face judgment with no sin attached to our souls. No sin. They've been forgiven by that blood. So that, not by our own merit, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy and the washing of regeneration, he has saved us. We have the blood of Christ. Well, our time is up. I want to thank you so much for being here tonight and for your patience as we walk through these questions. And I always enjoy questions and answers, and I hope that that you will continue to participate in putting them in the box. Is there someone here who wants to obey the gospel? Now would be such a good time to do that. We'll be happy to immerse you into Christ. And if you need the prayers of Christians tonight, for whatever reasons, we're here for you, and we'll be happy to pray with you and for you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to respond, come as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.